what must take place? Current and coming woes. <laughs> well, that doesn't sound good. Nope. Here in northern Colorado, we understand pretty well that when you hear thunder, it means a storm's coming. Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Storms coming. There is a point in today's teaching where I'm going to say this phrase. Revelation simply does not get harder than this. With 100% honesty, I'm not looking forward to that. But that'll be hard enough on its own terms, so let's not start there. Now that we're covering sections at a time, numerous chapters, nothing like the pace we started out with, I'm going to either assume or at least encourage that, that you're at least reading ahead or reading beyond with some of the content that we're dealing with. Because like I said at the very beginning of our study, there is always so much more than we can and should be encountering than just what we're going to cover in our time together. So after the letters to the seven churches, we pick up in chapter four. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once, I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. The door stands open. Access to the very throne room of God Almighty. <laughs> what if right now we could rip the ceiling off of this place and, and gain access, a glimpse of the heavenly worship of angels and saints and living creatures in all creation before the very throne of God Almighty. What would that look like? Revelation 4 says it would look like this. Wow. And how did, how did John get such a privilege to be able to see that? Well, that's kind of an understatement. He says, at once... I was in the spirit. Remember, that's, that's now the second pivotal time that he says that phrase, second of four. I was in the spirit. We talked about that earlier as being divinely possessed, as we discussed in week three, chapter one, verse 10. Or because the word possessed comes up with all kinds of negative connotations, maybe think about I was divinely or supernaturally overcome or overpowered to take all this in. And at once, the very, at the very heart of what he sees is the throne. The throne. Everything gets its bearings in relation to this in Revelation. Majestically transcendent 
encircled in brilliance and everything, whether angels or elders or lamps or a sea of glass or living creatures, everything finds themselves in relation to it. They, they get their description of where they're at and where they're positioned in relation to where the throne is. The throne is true north. When the seven churches are in the very midst of a time of persecution... When the Roman emperor demanded sole allegiance to him, this vision of God's throne makes it clear. No, Yahweh is the only one that deserves your total unyielding allegiance and worship. And that makes chapter four, following what we just read in the letters to the seven churches, it makes it a good fit, maybe not such a hard turn, a hard pivot after all. And the glisten and the gleam as we read about what it would look like to to cast our eyes upon that throne makes us kind of squint just reading it. Verse three, he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow and it had, had the appearance of an emerald, valuable, precious stones. This is a brief Old Testament kind of remembrance. Let's, let's remember that when the temple was adorned, decorated, designed, it wasn't on the cheap. There were not muted colors or, or knockoff jewels. The, this place was ornate with valuable, shiny, resplendent design. That's because of the divine overlap of the temple. This literal representative space where God's space encountered and overlapped with our space in such immense riches and value and uniqueness and the concentrated spaces of divine overlap between God's space and our space. That's what we see. We see it with the temple. We see it later, or we see it with the tabernacle. We see it with the incarnation and and we see it within the bodies of believers where divine overlap happens, God's space and our space encountering, there's richness there. There's immense value there. And so as we keep moving, uh, next come the angels and the living creatures. And you've got lots of encounters here with angels. 71 references in this book alone of Revelation. Why? Why? I mean, we've heard of encounters and interactions incidentally throughout scripture with angels. So why so concentrated? Why so much volume of encountering angels here in this vision? Because this revelation is a glimpse into the inner workings of the spiritual world. We're getting a glimpse that we don't naturally come by. This is a glimpse beyond just our reality. This is a glimpse beyond our reality. And then come the 24 elders and they join in. That's, that's the 12 and 12. 12 representing the, the Old Testament people, the, the tribes, and 12 representing the New Testament people of God, the apostles. Together, the angels and the elders and the saints and the living creatures are all seen together, encountered together. And it makes me ask the question, what's their reality like? What's their reality? Worship. 
the kind that you and I could only dream about. Oh, but we, we must dream about it. Unreserved, perfect worship from creatures and elders representing the choir of revelation entirely. And so how do these spiritual realities and earthly realities, how do they overlap? How do they interwork? God's space, active with angels and spiritual creatures and, and our space that we know and comprehend so well, that is the purpose of the meat of Revelation. That's the purpose of, of chapters four and on, what we're covering, so that we can start, so that the seven churches can start wrapping our heads around, how does all this make sense? How can I see the active, powerful, victorious God in my life, overlapping in our world? How can I, how can I reconcile all this? That's what the meat of Revelation is all about. This is referred to as what must take place. Then we move on to chapter five, and it says, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written and on the, within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. What is worthy have to do with opening the scroll? Well, let's put it this way. Who has sufficient authority to both unveil and implement God's mysterious agenda? Who can be fully entrusted with this? Well, at that standard, no one. No one. I promise you, not even the most braggadocious, overconfident person you or I have ever met or ever will meet would have the audacity to step forward here. All of creation in heaven and on earth and under the earth is left motionless right here, speechless. The elders don't move. The living creatures don't move. The angels don't move. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth has sufficient authority to see or oversee the full revelation of the Lord and how God's salvation plan is gonna be played out. No one's worthy of that. Until one of the elders, and I think it's probably Peter seeing how bold this next move is, breaks the silence and points everyone to the Lion of Judah. Here he comes. The Lion of Judah, hailing from the tribe and the lineage plan, set all the way back of the sons of Jacob in Genesis. In Judah, the brother that, that would repentantly offer his life as a sacrifice for his brother Benjamin's life. We talked about him last week, the, the lion man, doing a very sacrificial lamb type thing. That's a story to look back on when, 
when Judah, the lion, sacrificially offers his life. And that legacy would continue on through generations that would one day lead to a manger in Bethlehem, the root of Jesse, the root of David. Yeah, this is the moment you've been waiting for. This one is the real king. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among all the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Like we said last week, this is the conqueror. The lion and the lamb, this is how he conquers, forever celebrating and honoring that his slaying happened fully in real, tangible, flesh and blood ways. It happened, and guess what? Here he stands, still. He went through that. He conquered even that. What they did to him on Good Friday couldn't threaten him. He is worthy. He is worthy. The lamb standing alive, forever honoring the one who is worthy to open the scrolls and oversee God's salvation plan. Awesome. So now let's turn a bit more to the scroll of the lamb. This scroll represents how is God's kingdom going to come on earth as it is on, in heaven. That's what the scroll entails. The scroll describes the prophetic role of the church with the background of God's call to repent because his judgment is sure. It'll come. And the scroll also describes the ways the beast will come and kill the witnesses of the church. And even so, even as he does, the church will still stand victorious as the lamb has. And as the lamb, worthy, worthy is he, prepares to open the scroll, now is not the time for silence. <laughs> Great singing erupts in chapter five. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. I want you to picture this. This isn't just an amazing Sunday service or a great concert one night at Red Rocks. Myriads of myriads, thousands upon thousands, bawling out, worthy is the lamb who was slain from every nation and every language to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, utter worship. Chapter six, now for the seals, the seven seals. The unfolding accounts of history come only through the authority and the permission, as in per the mission of God, so that all people, not just Israel, but all nations may, may see and understand the plan of the Lord, the salvation intentions of God, and that they would repent from their ways and follow him. Now, don't miss that word, that idea of repentance. We're gonna come back to that in a bit in a tough chapter, chapter nine. All throughout chapter six, the opening of the seals reveals the judgment of the Lord for those who remain in rebellion. 
even after they reject his glory and his grace, calling people to repentance, God keeps at it. Maybe a foretaste of the judgment that awaits eternal rebels will finally make them turn around. Maybe see the destiny of their side will work. The point, God's point here being what? Repentance. A call, a plea, everything within his power that, that people might repent. Again, hold tightly onto that word. And alas, at the sight of God, at the end of chapter six, at the sight of God sitting on the throne, the depravity of humanity causes them not to repent and turn, but to fear his judgment and say, throw the mountains upon us so that we don't have to endure this judgment, the judgment of the lamb. And chapter six ends with the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Who can stand the judgment of God? Chapter seven, the answer to who can stand at the end of chapter six is those who are sealed. It says those who are sealed, God's owned and protected people, the multi-ethnic army of the lamb. In Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, Paul says, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, God's salvation plan that we were just talking about, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The sealed people do not need to fear, but they can join in with the choir of Revelation praising God. And then it says, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. Sounds awfully specific. (laughs) Do we round up there? In fact, sounds kind of small if you consider that that this represents all the people that have been saved by God. But I'm not sure why we would all of a sudden pivot from understanding things representatively, like the seven spirits of God representing the Holy Spirit. But now understanding this, 144,000, like it's a literal census of believers. Or some say it's a census of the believers of ethnic Israel. So I want you to look a bit more. If you've got your Bibles open, look a little bit more at chapter 7. And the 144,000, those who are listed, look at the list in your Bibles. It says, sealed from every tribe of the son of Israel, of the sons of Israel. And right there, that's another challenge to taking all of this literally. Because these listed from every tribe of the sons of Israel are not all of the sons of Israel. For one, Dan... He was one of the 12 sons of Israel. He's not on this list. And Manasseh, he was a grandson of Israel, and he is on this list. So what else might be going on here? If this isn't a literal census, what else is going on? The number, 144,000. 
12 times 12 times 1,000 suggests numerological symbolism here. 12 tribes representing the Old Testament people of God. 12 apostles representing the New Testament people of God. And 1,000 representing a span of generations, a span of time. Perhaps like the 1,000 years may represent a span, a duration of time, not an exact time. But just like there is significant debate over what the 144,000 is, there is perhaps even hotter debate on whether Israel here is symbolic, like for the church, or it's intended to refer to a literal ethnic Israel, distinct from the church. And I've shared probably more than a hint that my leaning in perspective of these numbers being representative continues to apply here. 12 times 12 times 1,000 representing the whole span of, of Old Testament people and New Testament people across all generations. And I am totally open to other interpretations there. Okay, inching a little closer to that dreaded chapter nine. Chapter eight. Check this out. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. <laughs> half an hour, what, what does a sense of time, of, of minutes, play in heaven? Well, in the terms we talked about when we went spiritually scuba diving back in week two, time matters a great deal. To the seven churches, to us, because we operate in time, a succession of moments. And we get our sense of time from the God that stands above time, telling us not necessarily that, that here that there is a succession of moments, a 30-minute period or 1,800 seconds. But even in the midst of cosmic perfect praise, and even as the salvation story across all of history unfolds, even in heaven, there is this notable, palpable, brief pause for the coming woes, for what's about to be unfolded. No one takes this lightly. This is like a deep breath, devastating woes, but not complete. Not the final word, not yet. Even in the cosmic, mind-boggling scope of heaven, silence, respect, concern is given by the choir of heaven, not being so caught up in their worship that they neglect or devalue what's happening and unfolding on earth, representing God's concern for people that need to repent. And for the great tribulation that God's persecuted people are suffering. Heaven cares about all that. Don't ever view heaven's sure justice and sure wrath or, or heaven's worthy praise of God to somehow overwhelm and devalue what's really happening in history. This half an hour pause reminds us that even in heaven, even amidst all the cosmic praise, when people on earth are wondering, does anybody see the tribulation that I'm suffering? 
Read Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, over and over and over, because the answer is all of heaven says yes. The silence before the sounds of the trumpets. The pause before the coming woes. Heaven hears. Heaven cares. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. These trumpets represent calls to repent. And and as you journey or study through chapter eight, I wanna share with you a little trick that's applicable across all of your Bible. Whenever you see something repeating in a section, like a lot, circle it, highlight it, underline it, whatever it takes. Here in this chapter, you're gonna see a word pop up everywhere, well over a dozen times, a third, a third, a third, a third. Every time you see that, highlight it, circle it. A third. Why a third? Because God's judgment is now being poured out in hopes that people would what? Repent. But it's not being fully poured out. It's being mercifully restrained. A third. A third. Significant but mercifully partial, still holding out room. Once again, real and devastating woes, but not complete. In hopes and intent of repentance. Look at chapter eight, verse 13. Woe, 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 humanity, repent. Please repent. Don't blow this off. Don't presume that you'll do it later. Do not neglect what is about to happen. Woe is you. Woe to you for what is about to blow. Chapter nine. All right, this is it. This is, this is a tough chapter piece to settle with. It honestly develops a, a lump in my throat just to talk about this content it's supposed to sit uncomfortably for us chapter 9 eternity waywardness rebellion must not be taken lightly we'll keep saying it god's going to be worshiped for all of eternity and the people of the church endure what you're facing that's the point of all of revelation right Okay, but for this teaching, for this study, this chapter, this week, I'm gonna say that this is the most important thing I want us to hear. Woes are poured out, released upon the rebels in succession like plagues. Ever holding out the intent, the call, the purpose that God has been pleading and pleading and pleading, repent, Please repent. What must I do to call you or compel you, humanity, to repent? And the rebellious raise up their own king, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. They're picking their side. And the first woe passes, and behold, two woes 
are yet to come. And the rebellion stubbornly and even wickedly holds fast. And I don't know what to do with this. I don't really want to continue with chapter 9. What's the point, the goal of God tormenting rebellious people? What's the point here as we encounter chapter 9? Repentance, if at all possible. And for some, too many, they, they stubbornly stick to their rebellion. Chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or of their sorceries or of their sexual immorality or their thefts. Here's what I hate. This is going on right now. This is absolute, eternal refusal to repent. And I have loved ones that this applies to, and so do you. This is happening right now. They worship and model their lives after things that aren't even animated. And they swear their ultimate allegiance to these things and develop spiritual patterns of worship. That's what I value. That's what I celebrate. That's what gives me my identity. And unrepentance continues to dig deeper and deeper and deeper in their lives. I don't know what to do with this. I mean, I do. It's, it's the gospel, it's the testimony of the lamb. It's the plea. It's everything else throughout this entire book. But it breaks my heart encountering it here in chapter nine. That some unrepentance sticks and it breaks God's heart. Be certain of this, people. In the end, God will have done absolutely everything that he can do that people might avoid eternity apart from him by their own choice. Revelation simply does not get harder than this. Chapter 10, as if to kind of force ourselves into moving on, John's purpose is revisited. <laughs> Yeah, after that last chapter, I'd need a reminder of, what am I doing? Chapter 10, verses 8 through 11. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the, angel, the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. 
And I was told, you must, again, prophesy about many people and nations and languages and kings. Take it and eat it. Even bitter realities can somehow still taste sweet to us because they come from the word of God. But that, that doesn't mean they're going to sit well with us. And that's not the point, is it? That God's word would always, God's judgment, God's plan would always sit nice and well with us. What's the point again? Calling all people to repent to this, that God will be worshiped. Rejecting him, rebelling against him, it's futile. God will be worshiped and glorified and for his church to endure. So John, continue to prophesy. Chapter 11, the nations will ever continue their resistance. They will come and trample the holy city for 42 months and God will grant authority to his two witnesses who will prophesy for 1,260 days. For 42 months. Mathematically, that's the same as 1,260 days and we'll talk about that more in a moment. The church will suffer and struggle. But in the big scope of things, it'll be brief. This is a hyperlink to the apocalyptic content that we see in books like Daniel, where we have phrases like this, time, times, and half a time. <laughs> Which, I'm not going to make too much of a detour here, but many take to represent a year, two years, and half a year. And math haters, just bear with me, I'll take care of you. A year, two years, half a year, that equals three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days. And if you're like me and you're going, uh, wait, what's with all this minutes and days and years and times? It continues to have to do with a sense of time that we talked about all the way at the beginning, a big picture sense of time. I propose that, that all of this months and days stuff continues to be representative, continues to point to something. Kind of like this, time, evil will rise and wreak havoc. Times, it'll seem like it's going on forever. It's unending. Evil's picking up momentum. And then half a time, but evil has a limit. It will not go unchecked forever. Evil has a limit. It will not last forever. Let the church endure. And then what about the two witnesses alongside two olive trees and two lampstands? God will anoint two witnesses, two bearers of his testimony to both the rebellious world and his enduring church. All who the Lamb has redeemed to rule as kings and, and serve as priests. Perhaps this could be Israel, kingdom, and church, the priests. Revelation 5.10, like we said earlier, you have made them a kingdom, priests to our God. Revelation 1, 5 through 6, to him 
who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to our God and Father. All together for those of us whose, whose head hurts a little bit, mine included. 42 months, two witnesses. It all means evil will rise, but not triumph. Let the church endure and let all my people who serve as royal representatives and priests bear faithful witnesses to the outsiders that they may repent and be brought into the kingdom and cease the ways of Sodom and Egypt. Look at chapter 11, verses seven through eight. The beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them, the people of God, and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. Can't show this scene in Timber Kids. <laughs> we even have a cipher here of sorts. The word symbolically is entered there. In Greek, that's spiritually. These centers of great earthly power, great rejection, they're representative. You've got Sodom, known for its utter depravity. What happened to them? Destroyed by the judgment of God. You've got Egypt, known for its persecution of God's people. How'd they end up? And around you, you include the great city that's symbolic of, of Babylon, which in Revelation is a euphemism for Rome. And also you've got where the Lord was crucified. Where's that? Jerusalem. Once again, if we take all of this together, almost like it's a riddle, there exists this crazy rich representation that every empire in every age that goes the way of the beast, that looks like it's gonna conquer and overtake the people of God, how do they end up? How do our history books account for them? That tries to conquer God's people, if not with delusions, then with death. Everyone that grasps after the glory that is God's alone and afflicts the people of the Lamb, repent. Repent for the destruction of what is wicked and what is utterly opposed to the kingdom is certain. Verse 14, the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. And finally for this week, then comes the seventh trumpet. From woes to worship a balm and a celebration for the kingdom. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Human history is full of empires who have defied the Lord. But the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, 
and those who fear your name. From woes to worship. The seals and the seven trumpets, the call of God to repentance for all nations. The scroll of the Lamb shows his fresh, effective mission. The mission of the church. When the church imitates the Lamb, proving by their testimony, by love and proof in conquering even death, it is the mercy of God that draws people to repentance. And before we cover the very last verse for today, or technically it's the first verse for next week, chapter 11, verse 19, you and I are right in the heart of Revelation, right in the middle of it all, the meat of Revelation. What is it all about? What's it all about again? That God will be worshiped. Let his people endure. Chapter 11, verse 19, at the very center of the book, John records the vision that leads us into the deepest perspective on the church's spiritual conflict. Right as today's section began in chapter 4, and right here in chapter 11, as it's concluding, the last trumpet sounds, and the earth, is ultimately shaken with flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Storm's coming. The cosmic battle, the deepest dimension of our conflict here in Revelation. That's what we're headed into next week. We hope you encountered the love and power of Jesus in today's study. If you're interested in giving for ministry and service information and much more, visit our website at timberlinechurch.org. Have a great week. Go be the church and let love live.